0: Hey everyone, it's Tim here. This is going to be a live episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's not This bit isn't live, um, but I recorded an episode at StorySmith Books in Bristol, a really fantastic independent bookshop, and uh, I got the author Gareth L. Powell, who's been on the show before, uh, agreed to uh, come and joined me and we chatted about books and saw so there was a live audience and people brought in their work and we sat down and and, and we gave our thoughts on it. And Gareth also got a uh, book, uh, a creative writing manual coming out called About Writing. So he talked a bit about that. He talked a bit about um, the novels he's written. And because it was, you know, part of my uh, book tour for the Ice House... I did a little reading from that as well. It was a really, um, I was, you know, I've been quite nervous doing these live gigs in a way that sort of doesn't entirely make sense to me because, you know, I, I've i done like over a thousand gigs in my life and I've done stand-up and I've done, you know, performance poetry, I've done stand-up in, in front of sort of 2,000 people at the, at the Reading Comedy tent so you'd think that sort of doing it in front of 40 people um, just talking about my book and having something to read out in front of me would be less a- anxiety-inducing. But it's just, it's been a while. Um, and and I guess it's it's quite new for me doing these things, you know, actually doing a show. I'm so used to being able to do this show just in my own office alone that, you know, having an audience is suddenly an extra thing. Uh, but it was Really good fun. It was very special. Um, my English teacher from year seven, who I haven't seen since, came, and I got to sign a copy of my b- book for him and hand it to him. And I didn't. It, it that sort of caught me off guard. How special that felt to me. I think I slightly weirded him out because um, he was a fantastic teacher. So. I felt, just had this weird thing of going, ah, wow, I made it. I did what I said I was going to do. Because he said to me, you were always saying, I'm going to be an author, I'm going to be a writer. And here I was, years and years later, signing a copy of my book for him. Funny old business, isn't it? Writing. And I think those are some moments that it's worth treasuring. You know, we... Uh, you know you never want to you know of course it's all about the story it's all about the writing and and we want to be kind of on to the next hashtag bliss when people uh, you know it comes off as smugness when you say oh this was a very important moment to me but um well if you feel that way then I suggest you examine some of your own motives why you feel that way perhaps you know you've got some sadness in your own life if you feel that way because it really I just think it's nice it was nice for me it was nice that was unnecessarily defensive. But yeah, it was. I, I had a good time and we just went through some people's work. And uh, I hope you find it useful too. Uh, the sound's pretty good. Actually, I'm pretty happy with it considering we're sort of recording in a bookshop with a couple of mics and I'm not a sound engineer. But I think it's all fairly legible and you, it's, it'd be like you were there, except you can't get our books. But you can get our books because I've put links in the show notes. If you would like to get a copy of my novel, The Ice House, or the one before that, The Honours, they're, you know, The *The Ice House is the new one, it's a sequel to The Honours, uh, I've, I've done a post on my website, uh, You could blog post you can go and read that talks about the first sort of few weeks of the book being out and how it's been for me, it's been a kind of mixed bag, but I feel very lucky, um, still sort of, honestly... Still slightly hurting for sales. It's not been... Um, the listeners of the show have been very supportive, but um still, you know, waiting for the book to sort of break out and be noticed. Hopefully there'll be some media coverage coming up, but you never know. Um, my fingers crossed about that. But if, you know, if you want to share news about it, I'd really appreciate that um just sharing you know a link where people can buy it's really helpful or if you've bought it sharing a photo because the cover looks really nice um but anyway uh it's that's been super good and if you'd like to buy a, a copy that's a really great way that you can support me and the podcast because i get my entire income out of writing so uh if you'd like to support me that would be fantastic and i'd really appreciate it and of course um the guest on this episode uh Uh, British Science Fiction Award uh, winning author Gareth L. Powell he has got a new book uh, called about writing about writing and um, I'll put links to that and his science fiction books Embers of War and um, the sequel to that Fleet of Knives we chat oh and he's got his uh, he mentions his book uh, Ragged Alice which is kind of like a crime thriller as well Um, I'll put links to those but um, he's a fantastic writer. And a really, a really great chap who does a lot to kind of support the writing community and lift other people up and be positive and help other writers. And so, again, if that's the kind of thing that you want to see more of in the writing community, then please click one of the links and and try out one of his books because I'm sure he'll appreciate it. And uh, he's he'll t- he talk we talk a bit about his writing manual, but um. He, you know, he's taken a slightly different tack with it, and there's loads of practical advice in there from someone who has to do the work, who turns up, who's you know, faced that problem every day of, I'm at a desk and some, I've got to make something happen. So I hope that that's going to be useful to you. In any case, um, here's the episode. This is um, me and uh, Gareth L. Powell doing a live episode of Death for a Thousand Cuts at Storysmith Books in Bristol. Thank you very much for being such lovely, lovely supporters of the show. And and thank you very much, by the way, for everyone who's who's come. I really, really appreciate it. Once we're into it, some of my anxiety will disappear and I will just uh, become too much. And then I'll be all right. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clarence, this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who has a morbid interest in how the story sausage is made. We've got three planks in our writing manifesto on this show, making you write more, making you write better and making you just a little bit happier as you do it. Now, this evening, this is one of the first ever live shows of Death of a Thousand Cuts and we're in Storysmith Books in Bristol and there is a live audience of people Yay! staring at me. Thank you. Thank thank you for confirming that you exist. Otherwise, I would have sounded like, at best like I'm a liar. And like occasionally, like it is less. I do spend a, a lot of time like recording in an office where really this microphone in front of me is the only thing that distinguishes me from a gentleman talking to himself in a service elevator um is this but apparently that makes it different it makes it important um but we're recording and um we're going to look at some listeners first pages today and we're going to talk about writing but I'm not going to do it alone in fact I don't think I probably could do it alone and today I'm joined by a uh, decorated uh, author and um a writer of uh, both fiction and now uh, non-fiction, uh, Gareth L. Powell. Hello, Gareth. How are you?
1: Hello. When you say decorated, it makes me feel like I'm
0: wallpapered. <laughs> 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 I, you, I mean, I. you have just, I, of course, you know, all awards are, uh, you know, are, 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 in some ways, they're not the point of it. The point is the art. But at the same time, you've had... A pretty good year, right?
1: Not bad. Yeah, i got some more stuff to dust.
0: <laughs> um And uh, oh, those of you who... Uh, look, there will be pressure, subtle and explicit throughout the evening for those of you who are here live to uh, purchase our books, which are up on the uh, shelf over to your... Uh, I guess that is starboard? Um, or is it port? I don't know. Like, if I'm a ship captain, port we're port. Us. Yeah, to port you. To port us. to us. Well, yeah, but I'm the port to us. Thank you for giving me an out there as well. You're like, of course it's port. You know that it's port to us, but uh, as a ship's captain. Originally port was called Larboard um, and you can imagine why they changed that. Why you would have, why if you need to, give orders quickly about which way the ship needs to turn in rough seas with a lot of noise. You don't want like, the two directions to be called left and left <laughs> because um, that that introduces uh, difficulties. Oh, That might be uh, factually inc- incorrect. Anyway, so we are going to... Hello, come in, sit down. Um, we're going to do a little bit of chatting about writing and then we're going to jump straight in to your first pieces. So, Gareth... Can we talk writing first of all? You have written this year a book about writing. I'm trying to... It's called About Writing. And (laughs) it's about writing. Can you... Can you talk a little bit about how you came to uh, write it? Because it's, like, quite an intimidating thing, I imagine. I wouldn't know where to start, like... I know it sounds ridiculous because I present a creative writing podcast, but like going, actually sitting down and going, okay, where do you start with telling people how to tell a story? Because like, you could talk about, there's so many things, right? How did you, how do you start organising all those things into like something that is not going to kill a dove if it falls off a shelf and lands on it?
1: Um, well, I actually, actually wrote this book by accident. Um, <laughs> For years on my website, I've been, as I've kind of gone from uh, hopeful amateur to where I am now, whenever I've come across something I didn't know before, I've written a blog post about it, or something I thought thought's useful that nobody ever taught me, I've written a blog post about it. And one evening, <laughs> towards the end of last year, I sort of collected all these blog posts into a Word document um, to sort of back up my website in case it broke, which it is wont to do. And I looked at it, and it was about forty thousand words long. And I tweeted, "Oh, I seem to have accidentally written a book." Hmm. And then Luna Press contacted me and said, "We'll publish it." <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I can. There's like writers struggling writers now, just grinding their teeth, hearing that, going, "Oh yeah, I just guys, this book just fell into my hands." And then the publishers go, "Brilliant!" And you're like, "Way!" Um, but can you talk a, so? I want to ask you about, because this week has been weird, but this this is what's on my mind. Okay, Gareth. This week, and maybe you on Twitter follow a lot of fantasy writers as well, but a lot of fantasy writers that I follow and science fiction writers have had opinions about how they would write certain TV shows better if they had (laughs) had a chance themselves. Do you ever find yourself watching stuff or reading stuff and kind of, Armchair quarterbacking it a little bit, constantly,
1: constantly. I had the uh, the misfortune to watch the Independence Day sequel um, (laughs) the other day on DVD. I
0: completely blanked out that there was a sequel to that. You just said that now, and I, I oh yeah,
1: (laughs) and I I was just sat there going, "That's not how Gravity works. (laughs) You can't suck up Japan and drop it on London." What? Oh my goodness. The alien spaceship has such fierce gravity. It sucks up Tokyo and then it gets to London and decides to turn off its gravity and Tokyo falls on London. And then nothing ever gets sucked up by its gravity ever again in the whole film. They just kind of walk around underneath it with no problem. So, yeah, I I was just, I was was fuming at every single point in that film. Um, Not quite as bad as Lucy, starring Scarlett Johansson which is a film about a woman who takes a drug that operate that allows her to access 100% of her brain's capacity, which is just a rubbish myth because we do that anyway. We mean, why would we carry around some 90% or something we never use? And from an evolutionary point of view, it's just bollocks. But, <laughs> but this film, and so when she got to about 40%, she could spontaneously change her hair colour just by thinking about it, and it got to 60% and she could fly. And it was just... You can't fly by thinking really hard, (laughs) and then at the end she turned into this like nanotech computer thing after travelling in time to visit the original kind of cave person Lucy, who was the mother of the whole human race, and have a kind of two thousand and one moment with her, and then back. And she, you know, apparently if you if you can access fifty percent of your brain, you can do amazing kung fu. (laughs) um, And I've got a fourteen year old daughter, and she ranted for two hours after that film. (laughs) Two hours. And I I had to agree with everything she said. So yes, absolutely. I mean, becoming a writer is the quickest way to ruin your enjoyment of reading or watching television.
0: (laughs) I like that. I can't remember who it was that said that uh, a writer is someone... Is someone for whom writing is harder than it is for other people? And it, it seems like like reading and watching stuff is can be harder. But there's sometimes like a little bit of like enjoy, enjoyment as well in bad in bad movies or in movies that you kind of get you go. Do you, do you do you do you secretly depart? Does part of you enjoy it? Because I know when I see something that's like really bad, yeah. part of me is having the time of my life.
1: I do watch. Crap movies to unwind, um, because if I've been plotting all day or, or working on fiction and all that, watching something that gives not a damn for the rules of narrative <laughs> <laughs> can, can be quite quite relaxing. Because I don't have to sit there thinking, "Oh, they're going to do this, they're going to do this." I just sit there going, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite freeing because I, I'm not. Wor- I I know what I'm getting going in, so I can just kind of. I I guess it's like a, um, an Olympic sprinter going for a gentle jog. It's that. Kind of just unwinding, thinking, "Yeah, this is rubbish." But
0: I, I, I remember seeing a movie where they got like a laser. They had a laser pistol, and they were trapped in a hole. And they fired the laser, and it like bounced off the sides of the <laughs> hole and made a ladder. And then they climbed out.
2: <laughs> and at that yeah.
0: point, I was just like, um okay." Uh, okay. <laughs> like, wow, that's really exciting. But I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm less watching like a coherent narrative and more like I'm having a breakdown or someone spiked my drink. Can you, so, I'm going to ask you like the big question now. What are some of the, can you talk about a couple of the principles you you talk about in the book? Uh, some like key things about good writing. That's a big question. I know, it's huge, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I called this book a field guide for aspiring authors. Because it's not really a kind of instruction manual, because, you know, Stephen King wrote on writing, and there would be no point in me rehashing that. And there's lots of books about the nitty gritty of the English language and putting sentences together. So the kind of things that this covers, as I said, are, are stuff that possibly wouldn't be taught. So there's a, a chapter called The Fear which is the fear that gets you when you get 20,000 words into a book and you think, this is rubbish. They're going to crucify me. <laughs> I'm going to stop writing. And you, that's how to, you've got to fight that fear because the fear comes and whispers on your shoulder when you're writing. But I've done things like, um, there's 55 story ideas in here for people who are stuck. Um, there's uh, how to choose the people your Twitter teachers, people you follow on Twitter to learn rather than argue with. Uh, how to get mm. how to get started how to keep being creative in a crisis, how to beat writer's block with a hundred words. so there's lots of kind of it's it's like it, it's designed to fit in your back pocket so when you're kind of ex- when you're kind of writing and you get stuck or you you find something um, well you don't know where to go there's hopefully there's something in here <laughs> but help you there's three ways to breathe breathe life into your fiction um, which is talking about how what writing what you know really means
0: can i ask you about the one i want to ask you about is about the fear because it's really interesting that you like nail it at twenty thousand words um i've spoken to different writers and i asked them about like where that moment comes for them because i've met people for whom it's like before they before they write a word they're terrified and then once they're in it There goes. For some people, it's 20,000. For some people, it's 30,000 words. For some people, it's... They can do the entire first draft. And then when it comes to revising it, they're like, uh... For some people, it's the end of revision when they're finally going to have to show it to someone else. Like, up until then, they're okay. Can you talk a little bit about how you get through that? You've gone through that period of being like, oh, I've had a new idea, and you're writing it down. You've just it's almost like you're just starting to sober up from that initial, like, party. Yeah. And now this is, like, a project and you're going to have to see it. Can you talk a little bit about that, what that's like for you?
1: Well, it's 20,000 words in is, is the point for me where I've kind of invested a serious amount of time in getting this done. But the ending is still 80,000 words away. It's just... So it's like I've done the foothills and I've suddenly be confronted with this giant precipice that I have to... To scale, and it's at that point that you start to doubt. You start to think, Have I got enough plot to last that distance? Have I got the energy to do it? You know, have you know, are all my characters really jabbering trolls, hmm. um, or are they coming across as real people? Yeah, and you, st- you just start sort of freaking out that you know, Oh my god, somebody's paid me to write this and it's rubbish. Um, hmm. I'm gonna have to give all the money back, um, and <clears throat> I'll be hounded out of. Off the internet forever.
0: That's the thing is, like, your, the story you start creating of like your public shaming. Becomes like more elaborate than your actual ideas for the plot, right? Yeah. And you're imagining like how all these, and then, and then there'll be like all these like, all the like review sections will be like, Gareth L. Powell loses it spectacularly. What is this nonsense? It, it's like, it's like these, it must, it, it's that it, the writing brain is still being creative. It's just being creative about how, what a disaster the next six months are going to be.
1: Um, it hit me the worst. Um, there. There's Embers of War and Fleet of Knives are the first two parts of the trilogy, and I wrote wrote those quite quickly and enjoyed writing them a lot, but when I came to write the third part, which isn't out yet, Embers had just come out to amazing reviews, and that completely stymied me because I thought I've got to wrap this trilogy up, and it's got to be good enough to justify the amazing reviews of the first part, <laughs> and that was that actually terrified me for a good couple of weeks. I was just going, Oh God. What if that was the best thing I ever wrote? What if I have peaked?
0: <laughs> I, I think that's really good that you say that because it sounds there may some of you may be listening and thinking uh, that sounds like a luxury problem. I'd love to. Oh, poor Gareth! He, his book came out. People are writing publicly. I love it. That that does sound tough. That does sound really difficult. What I'd ru- if only you could have been labouring in obscurity. But I had exactly the same thing when the honors come, came out that it wasn't, there were some people who hated it, uh, but, you know, but it, well, those weren't the reviews. I wasn't bothered. I was like, cool. Well, I've, you know, uh, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I already doubt myself. So, um, if anything, we're on the same side. You can be part of my gang. We would, we have a lot in common, you and I. Uh, okay. I think Tim Clare's waffling and slightly tedious. And I'm like, well, you know, it's a living. But when people were nice about it, I was like, oh, that's what, that was exactly the same for me. I suddenly like froze up because I was like, Oh, I've got people who've been very kind who now I could disappoint. Before when I was writing, they didn't know I'm writing this. They're not going to go, where's the book, Tim? They don't know I'm writing it. But now there's a character that they sort of believe in. And if I then go and the next thing they see that character doing feels like a bad fanfic of my own work, not only are they not going to enjoy that, but I'm going to spoil their enjoy. Does that sound... Was that the kind of thing you were... It was exactly. Suddenly
1: there's a burden of expectation. When you're writing in obscurity, um, it's a bit freeing because, you know, you can write whatever you like, and there's nobody breathing down your neck. I and mean, I guess it's like when you're writing the first season of Game of Thrones, you can take your time and enjoy it.
0: And indeed, indeed, did
1: But then there's always the danger of doing a season eight. So,
0: I mean, I can't. I Im- got to say, I can't imagine the incredible pressure I would be feeling. And I would just say, I would. Li- I mean, I suppose it is a grim, dark ending, but I would just write, and then, and then they all died. Or oh, I, I, there, the book's finished. I'm going to write something else, because I mean, he started writing it in 1990, yeah. so it's only been he's and he's still writing it. 29 years is it? 29 years? Yeah. That's a long time to be writing something and then trying to bring it home. Um, I think I would probably take that long.
1: <laughs> it was originally sold as a trilogy as well. God. Oh
0: my gosh. Can you, I can, I can imagine that. I can imagine keeping thinking I'm finishing and then it kind of like breaks into two and you're like, Oh no. Oh my gosh. Um, and how do you, can you talk a bit, little bit about, cause it'd be a shame to just leave it there and go, Well, if you ever become popular, it'll be terrifying and you won't do, and then you'll find it hard, but you have kept going. What things get you through that? <laughs> that's that's a weird thing for your phone to do, but thank you. It's okay. Um.
1: Uh, sheer bloody mindedness is a very good quality to have. Um, writing is not a profession for people who like instant gratification. So I just have to keep going. Not having any other job is a great motivation as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, this this is how I support myself. So. If I'm not working on something, I'm, you know, taking unauthorised leave of absence. So um, the boss, which is also me, will come down on me like a ton of bricks. (laughs) So um, I I, I guess I just... I also want to tell these stories. I have all these stories I want to tell. I've got a pipeline of books that I want to write. Um, So it's just... It's literally just a case of, of even on the days where I'm suffering the worst imposter syndrome I've ever had just having to keep going just having to get, even if I write five words a day as long as I are five good words then it's alright because maybe tomorrow I'll write a thousand, so it's just um, there's a, a bit in the book here where I said beating writers block in a hundred words is uh, a tip my sister taught me, she's also a novelist um, which was every day just aim to write a hundred words so even if you feel crap, just write a hundred words It's two or three sentences You can do it in five minutes um, But at least you've written a hundred words um, And it doesn't feel like such a daunting prospect As I have to write a thousand or I have to write a chapter I'll just write a hundred words And often You write the hundred words and you're done And you walk away But at least you're a hundred words closer to your target But on some days that hundred words sparks another hundred words And then another hundred words And you you take off and you go So it's that's kind of like one of the main tricks I use to kind of trick my brain to stop tweeting and you know stop making tea and just sit down and actually write is just you know I'll just do a quick hundred words and then I'll go and make a sandwich um, and then two hours later I realize I've written ten pages so
0: it's not so you'd like use it as a little bar- bargaining chip with yourself yeah and I imagine like my experience of having cold showers if you don't anyone who doesn't listen to the podcast is sometimes this is my like one like weird thing that I go on about all the time but I started taking cold showers like a year ago and um and I really enjoy them and I know that makes me like a monster but like one of the things is like the hardest <laughs> bit of a cold shower is actually the probably the the time before you're in the cold shower and then it's the first 10 seconds and then it's fine And that's a bit like the first sort of 50, 100 words that you write. Like, actually, all the uncomfortableness is anticipating it and sitting down at the the desk. Once you've written, like, the first couple of sentences, the worst has sort of happened, and maybe you've written something bad, but you're doing it now. So you might... The kind of hard work of getting there and starting is over. And then from then on, you can kind of just acclimatise. And I don't mean to sound like uh, all writing is like spraying yourself with... Cold, cold water. I realise that's what they do in labs to induce stress in rats. But like, it, but but that it, the hardest thing, the roughest thing, and the reason actually cold showers have helped me get over some procrastination is I discovered like it didn't matter how long I putting it off didn't make it any less cold when I went in. It just meant I had longer to wait, and all that build up was horrible. So if you want it to be over, start it, and then like you say, then once you've done a hundred words, you can come. Have a lovely sandwich and you're done.
1: <laughs> Another trick I have found as well is is sitting down in the morning and facing a blank page. You know nobody likes to look at just an empty white expanse. Well, apart from Ranulph Fiennes, but nobody <laughs> likes to look at a big empty white expanse. Um, and so the night before, I'll open the document. You know, write the title, and I just write a random sentence. Um, really? So, wow! So that when I get up the next morning, it's not a blank page. It's something I can work on, even if I think oh, that sentence is rubbish and delete it. I'm in the document, and it's it's like uh, having a pristine notebook and being too afraid to write anything in it because it's so lovely. So you just scribble on page one, and then it's ruined. Then you can just carry on. And <laughs> nice.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: I do that as well. If I finish writing one day and finish at the end of a chapter, then it's really paralyzing the next day to look at like chapter thirty and a blank page. You think, oh. So I'll just scribble like. Henry shut his head in the door. Then, <laughs> the that's next... a really good first line for a chapter. <laughs> yeah, the next day I'll, come, I'll sit down and go, why would Henry do that? No, no, and get on with what Henry's supposed to be doing. So yeah, it's just a little trick to sort of not be paralysed by the, the blankness.
0: Well, that sounds really, really practical. That's awesome. Um, I thought we might like actually just dive straight into these um, first pages, if that's all, all, all right, because um, I'm aware that people have submitted stuff and... Um, Really like to talk about them. Now, before we do, just want to um, lay down some stuff for those of you who haven't listened before. Uh, one, we are not in any way judging um, the writers. One, as human beings, um, all of you are in, uh, inherently valuable, uh, wonderful, magical people who are worthy of like love and respect. And the nothing, no one can write a book so bad that they in any way negate that for even a moment. Nor, actually, are we judging you as writers either. Um, all good writers, in fact, I imagine all brilliant writers, write horrible first drafts and write bad stuff all the time, right? It, 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 that is part of it. Um, and then you just look at what you've written and look at ways to make it better. So we're not even judging anyone as a writer. All we're doing... Is looking at these first pages and thinking, what do we think of them? How can we make them? How can we make them better? Now, of course, we're going to like try and give as much feedback as we can to make them better and discuss that. But in no way is it about this person's a good writer. This person's a bad writer. We're looking at, pro- we're looking at kind of process, not product as what makes writer and if any of you are sort of because sometimes we do these as well and people listen and go oh that was really actually that first page was really good my first page is nowhere near that level well that's fine one you've got great like, if you've got self-awareness, I'm not actually asking anyone to take away the scepticism of their own work, some doubts you might have, some things where you might go, I think I could do this better. Having good taste as a writer is part of the whole deal, right? If you sometimes look at your work and go, this could be better, fantastic! You've got good taste, you can look at your own work and you can look at ways to make it better. It is said that Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, the um <laughs> artist... Um, there's an apocryphal story that he like wept when he looked on one of his pieces of work and found it perfect because he decided it meant that he was getting old and his judgment was failing, that he his sight might be going and he, and he didn't know that it was... He, he couldn't tell how to improve it. Now, I would just say like on a slightly less dramatic level, it can be fun to make stuff better. Like when... It's not always fun to hear criticism or feedback, but like actually... When you when you implement it and the work you did gets better, you get to take the, all the credit for that, right? Like when people read it, they won't go, "Well, this has obviously been um, had a good writing workshop, work on it." Then, wow, there's this is real good quality of like editing, and obviously has got some lovely beta readers. They'll just go, "Wow, you're a really good writer," because that's what we think, we imagine. We've got this myth of the lone writer who just kind of comes out with, just kind of goes. Ah, and then like a lights on a sentence and it kind of streams through and occasionally like good, cool sentences. You'll be, I, I, last week I was waiting for pizza and a first, a stupid first sentence came to me and I ended up writing a whole story about it. Sometimes it happens, but a lot of the time you write one and then you doubt and then you change something and then you write again and then you, and and, and it's slowly you just sort of shape it. So that's what we're looking at here. And um, it's done with sort of like mutual respect and kind of peer to peer. Me and uh, Gareth, although we write a lot, we're not setting ourselves up here. At least I don't think we are as like great authorities who are telling you the proper way to write. We're just looking at it as people who love stories, who have to sit at a desk and have this face the same problem of making a first page work for the story of what we're writing. And we're just going, okay, so if I was facing this, this is what I would try and do, right? Is that fair enough? Um, And and so all I'll say is like, we'll read each one and then we'll give some feedback. And then if anyone in the audience has any thoughts, stuff we didn't, you know, we missed out on, then by all means, you know, I'll give you a moment at the end to kind of uh, feedback and then we'll go on to the next one like that. Uh, That's about it. I think we'll kind of just uh, jump. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who um, has submitted, we're going to do three pieces. Um, So first off, the first piece I think we'll do is uh, by uh, Jackie, and uh, the working title is Contact. So if it's all right, I'll just read this out so you've all heard it. It's going to be a long day. I mean, I know all days are the same. They all last 24 hours. No more, no less, except twice a year when the clocks go forward and back. But let's not get too picky, yeah? After some brief Googling, I have learned that there are 1,440 minutes and 86,400 seconds in a day. 1,440 minutes doesn't seem like a lot when you think about how many things a day holds. A baby can be born in less than a day. A whole new person in the world in fewer than 1,500 minutes. Just seems odd. Anyway, today, despite being no more than uh, 1,440 minutes long, is going to feel longer than that. I just know it is. Today could also be the last day I ever see. Alternatively, it could be the first day of the rest of our lives. Okay, okay, enough of the clichés. So, have you ever read H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds? It's about Martians coming to Earth and basically attempting to kill everyone, only they catch some common virus which kills them because they have no immunity to such things. Well, we seem to be living the updated version of this. Aliens are coming! Aliens! Think Rimmer from Red Dwarf for that one. A message was received by NASA other space agencies are available that the people from serentopia a planet from outside our solar system were traveling to us don't ask me how this was communicated i think it was explained as some kind of Babel fish. read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy if you can find a copy they're flying off the shelves as is every novel about space travel aliens and what have you as if they're some kind of manuals for what might happen next they ran our response through some kind of computer program and eventually worked out how to communicate in english So that happened about six years ago. They've been traveling at ridiculous speeds to us ever since and apparently are due to land today. They're going to land in the Atlantic Ocean and a special platform, or rather a man-made island, has been built at the land site. They're landing in the sea because it's neutral ground. Every country in the world demanded that they land in their country. Obviously the USA wanted them, but so did the Chinese. And both countries were big enough and had enough open spaces for this to happen. And we very nearly had World War III over it seriously armies across the globe were mobilized then someone and I forget who suggested landing in the sea as it was neutral there was a massive hoo-ha about which sea and where but eventually the Atlantic was chosen this huge island was built there are hotels or blocks of flats type things for all the people the scientists the journalists tv crews and then there are really fancy places for the world leaders who are all there now The presidents, the prime ministers, the royalty. There is more security on that island thing than the rest of the world put together, they reckon. There's also houses or rooms or whatever they are for a whole bunch of celebrities and millionaires and stuff. People who have so much money they can afford to take up a space. I don't reckon most of them even care about the actual space side of things, just that they can say they were there. Okay, so, uh, Gareth, would you like to start? What do do you make of this first page?
1: I assume this is a humorous story.
0: I, I certainly you found bits funny. Yes, yes.
1: With, with all the asides and so on. Um, I must say, though, that I found that the whole opening, talking about the number of minutes in the day, my attention started to slide quite quickly. Um, I don't so, don't... so this
0: is from, the, it's going to be a long day. I mean, I know all days are the same. They all last 24 hours, that that bit. Yeah. You found that you were sort of like slightly losing focus for that?
1: Yes, I, 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 I just wanted to say get on with it.
0: All right, so my feeling about that bit is, his his my take on it. I think, like, in this first page sets up, like, the voice of... I imagine that this was, like, a teenager, maybe, he was talking, or, like, a younger narrator. And they're kind of like, we're supposed to know that they're a little bit scatterbrained, and they're probably a little bit excited. Um, I think that I agree with you that what's interesting for me is that there's an alien going to land yeah. and the aliens are coming. Like, as soon as we get to that, I'm like, oh, hello. Um, And maybe that first bit is just like, there's not a story happening yet. And it can sound really sort of, it can sound a bit, you know, like, it's, well, it's only a, a paragraph, right? But right at the beginning of the story, I think readers are really itching for some basics of the world to be established so we know where we are and what's going on.
1: I think, What we want to do is to be introduced to the character straight away. Um, And by the end of the page, I don't know who's talking. I want the the character to be talking straight from the beginning and to know who it is.
0: So you want a sense of this narrator kind of like in the narrative now or doing something or we're seeing uh, him or her on their way somewhere or getting breakfast or switching on, that you want something in the narrative present where they're doing something. Something
1: to draw us into who this person is and why we care about them. Um, I liked today could also be the last day I ever see. I thought that could be a good first line.
0: I Yeah, I agree. That was the first line that I read and I was like, oh, hello. Like I, yeah. I, That's where my like, attention picked up.
1: Um, but I kind of... Um, there's, there's the old sore of show, don't tell. And this is all telling. Um, I, I'd like to see some showing, so... You know, if if they were watching the news, they could re- you, you They could be telling us this information as they drank their tea and, and buttered their crumpet and petted their dog, or whatever. So we know who they are, and it's like we're kind of experiencing it with them rather than just kind of them just telling it all to us in a big kind of info dump.
0: I mean, I so I'm gonna. I part. Of, I understand what you're saying. Part of me slightly is gonna disagree with you a little bit in that I do feel the voice, there's some showing in the voice rather than, uh, telling because we know, like, this person is like pinging about, they talk about HG Wells, they talk about War of the Worlds, they think about Red, they talk about Red Dwarf, they talk about Hitchhiker's Guide, like, they, Feel to me like someone who like reads a lot, who maybe is a little bit geeky. Like I feel like I am getting some bits of character through here. I feel like they're a little bit skeptical of the whole. They're a bit like you know when they start talking about the presidents, prime ministers, and celebrities. It's interesting that they're not approaching the aliens coming as like, wow, life exists. Like, there's six years has passed since this has been announced, and this is someone who is pretty like in lots of ways over it it's just like <laughs> come on this has turned into like a sideshow and so I did feel I agree with you I'd love to have this happening in a scene and I'd love to see if the news is on the news could be telling us one thing and the character could be responding with well we all know that's a load of rubbish well that's what they say but I do feel like I I do feel like I'm getting a personality coming out yeah. of this
1: I just want a bit more of it so immediately I know that he's talking I feel like I'm being mean.
0: No, I don't think think you are. I totally understand because we're not talking about the the writer. We're talking about this page and we're talking about the bits of it that you like and you want this character to be lifted out. And instead of them just telling us about stuff, you'd like to see them in action, like facing something. Maybe with a problem as well. I feel like I've had this problem with like when I'm writing a character and they're just telling the story. In fact, with the book I'm working on at the moment, first person narrator and the first three pages I wrote was all... Let me tell you about the city where I live. Here's the history of it. And people said, this is boring. And then as soon as I started by having the character hanging upside down underneath a bridge with a knife in their teeth, waiting to do a heist, people were like, oh, this voice works. It's the same voice. It's the same voice. It's just like I was letting them talk while the kind of janitor was stacking chairs, right? And they didn't have a story to be in. As soon as I dropped her into a situation, people were like, oh, this voice is good. It's the same voice. It was, what was, and it's like, okay, you can kind of, sometimes you have to, sometimes you write your way into a story. Do you ever find that, that you write something and then you cut a couple of the first pages because you were finding the sense of telling the story to
1: yourself? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, um, my old English teacher told me, start as close to the end as you can. Um, and so I do find it, you know, and a, a lot of stuff I've written is in the first person like this. And I do do a lot of waffle as they waffle around trying to find what they're supposed to be doing. And as soon as they start doing something, that's where the story starts.
0: I've got to say, I really think as well with first-person narration, where you've got a narrator, that you have to write about twenty to 30,000 words. And then there's like a moment where the character kind of comes to life. And then they... I know it's going to sound like I've gone a bit potty, but then they just start talking and you can just listen and write it down. Or at least it's very easy to know exactly whenever you're telling the story, what they think about this, yeah. what their opinion would be. They start sometimes saying things in ways you're not entirely comfortable with writing down. You're like, well, that's a bit rude, but this is what they think of that person. Okay, well, I'll do it now. And in the second draft, I can maybe clean that up a bit. Um, I really like, that happened about six years ago. They've been traveling at ridiculous speeds to us ever since and apparently due to land today. Like, I I like knowing, I think, like, for all this kind of, the show, don't tell, I like having that, knowing that clear arc that it's like, we've known about this for six years. Tick, 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 tick. And today is the day that, so we know that the... That really helped me just centre in on what this story was about and I think having that, a clear line that, 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 that
1: would make a very good first line. The, the aliens have been coming for six years and they arrived today.
0: Just that would be an amazing years. first line, yeah. Y- yeah Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Um I I would say, like I'm not saying I would want to keep lots I like the I like the personality behind this voice. Um and I would I like Asides, and I like a character who maybe goes, "Oh my god, this reminds me of this." And I I really also like a story where there's aliens, and the person, the narrator, is genre savvy. The narrator has seen people talk, humans talk about aliens before. It's not like a a zombie story where no, like literally nobody has ever contemplated the possibility that the dead could rise and walk. They're all like, "Well, I don't know what we're going to call." These things shambling around, I guess they're going to be called the uh, strollers. I, uh, I, and it's difficult, right? Because at the same time, like if you do have genre savviness, then sometimes it can seem like it can go into parody. But I, I like that this person knows that human beings have imagined what aliens are like before they come. and. I, is, I,
1: I like that as well. It gives the promise that a lot of the tropes that they're mentioning are going to be twisted. In yeah. later in the story and that that's quite interesting the other thing that I found that piqued my attention was this man made island
0: it's a cool idea right
1: well the fact they've put all the world leaders all the celebrities all the rich people on it I'm assuming it's going to get blown up on the next page do you so, do,
0: yeah did you I, I mean I definitely had that thing where my antenna are going up you're going oh they've put they've put all the most they've put quite a lot of the power centers of the world on a man made island in the middle of the oh, that sounds eggs in one basket. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sounds yeah, you know, a security nightmare. So yeah, so I mean, it might it might not, but I'm assu- I'm assuming it's going to get blown up pretty sharpish.
0: Yeah, I, I I think certainly that is a cool premise, and I was yeah, my attention was piqued by that as well, and I was like going, oh gosh, wow, that sounds risky, especially as we have no idea what the aliens are going to be like when they arrive. Wow, today is going to be Interesting.
1: Yes. And also extra points for using the phrase
0: massive hoo ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, has anyone in the audience got any uh, thoughts, any things we didn't cover, any uh, other things uh, about that that you uh, felt? Uh, on kind
2: of one, one of these you were just talking about, about the PSI, I really like the fact that Ben said, um Everyone's been going out and buying every sci fi novel as
0: if it's an instruction manual for what's going to happen. Yeah, that's really, yeah, uh, I think that's a think good line. Really
2: yeah, interesting insight. I would like it if that happened.
0: Um, I, <laughs> there's actually, they. have uh, you ever read, has anyone ever read, um, Zoo City by uh, Lauren Biakes? Because, um, yeah. it's a story where, um, for no reason that anyone in the story can really figure out, um, people have started if they do something considered evil. Like dark shadows start like moving towards them to like consume them. And then like a little animal will appear by them and chase them all off. And now they have a little kind of like, uh, like demon style creature that looks after them and gives them a small magical power. Um, but if that demon ever gets killed, the shadows will come and consume them, right? And what's really cool about it, apart from that, which is a cool premise, is that interspersed with all the chapters she's just put in stuff from how the world is coping with this and one of the things you get a little snippet from is someone's thesis where they are looking at the his dark materials books in the light of the fact that people actually have these creatures now and going what, what? <laughs> how do we it's a piece of literary criticism there's also a there's also uh, the imdb um entry from a documentary about a, an Afghan warlord who's got a penguin in a bulletproof jacket that he takes <laughs> around with him everywhere. And it's just cool, right? It's just like, this is how the world is dealing with something. An actual human, but they know they've read books like, like you have. Um, cool. Okay. Um, so we'll do the next one then, if that's okay. This, um, one is by Jennifer and it's called, um, A Shot in the Dark. His name was Henry, and he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Henry's body was found up up a tree near the old dockyard by old man Morgan and his faithful would-be bloodhound, a cocker spaniel named Spooky. While out for their morning walk, Spooky had practically pulled his elderly owner across the lane they usually followed, and over to the tree, where his barking at first annoyed Mr Morgan and then alerted him to the presence of something rather large and unleaf-like hanging above him. When we questioned him, he gave full credit to the dog. To be honest, so did we. It wasn't that old man Morgan wasn't a credible witness. It's just that we all knew he wasn't exactly as mentally sharp as he used to be. Retirement had come to him a long time ago and his mind was going the natural way. Henry was relatively new to our small island community. he had come here often on vacation when he was a child and had apparently taken a liking to the place as he'd moved here the day after graduating from high school. I'd met him a few times and he seemed like a decent enough sort of kid. Not a troublemaker, really, but he did like to drink now and then, even while still underage. He'd also gotten into a few fights with local toughs. But like I said, ours is a small community and we dot, 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 because the um, per- submitter there um, was very, very wanted to stick to the word limit. And so stopped mid-sentence, which was very kind. Um, any sort of opening impressions about this one, Gareth? Um.
1: I'm assuming it's not
0: a comedy. Um, it does, doesn't not intrinsically funny finding a body <laughs> up the tree. I must admit, yeah. it wouldn't, laughter wouldn't be my first. Perhaps yeah. a, a a shocked giggle and then realizing that it wasn't a um, yeah. prank. It, it's
1: it's a classic dog walker finds dead body opening, which is um, always good. And it's obviously setting us up for a, some kind of murder mystery. I I don't understand why Henry isn't smart. I mean, obviously he's dead, so. Um, I mean, oh, I hopefully li- that's gonna that's gonna be explained that first line. Because um, on its
0: own, yeah, it's a pretty good first line, right? Yeah. His name was Henry, and he wasn't as smart as he thought he was.
1: Seems like quite a sort of noir Philip Marlowe kind of first line, yeah. Um, which seems slightly at odds with the, the kind of all the detail about spooky the dog pulling his owner about the place and and so on. It kind of goes starts tough and then kind of drifts.
0: The dog feels like cocker spaniel is like not. Is not very noirish, right? Like a bloodhound. Yeah. He, he feels, like, feels like they couldn't like a casting agency had like someone let them down at the last minute, and they were like, <laughs> "When
1: you lied on your resume." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He's
0: like, "Are you sure you're a bloodhound?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't expect to be doing a bad impression of a cocker yeah. spaniel tonight.
1: I mean, it, it, it's very hard to judge things just from I mean, this many words. Um, it's very but you know just just from what we've got here I'm sort of pulling a few conclusions um they're in a small island community um it feels like it's in America for some reason
0: um high school graduating from high school was yeah. my guess why it would be America and um small decent enough sort of kid was yeah. like those were the moments that made me think it was american
1: so i I'm, I'm, I'm fe- feeling it's like an American place. so um so Henry's Henry's uh, thinks he's smart, and he's underage. But I didn't know how he how that meant he could afford to move to the island the day after graduating high school. But I'm sure um, So
0: true. I this there was some stuff that I got confused by. I think that this is I don't know if, how people felt when they were listening to this. But it goes, his name was Henry, but and then and it's Henry's body was found. So it, he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Henry's body was found up a tree. So immediately. It, When you say his name was... When we get that first line, his name was Henry and he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. I kind of picture a character who's about to do something dumb, right? Or is... Like, they've appeared, like, in the middle of a kind of, like, vast blackness and that there is Henry. But I picture him, crucially, alive. And then it's like, Henry's body was found up a tree and I'm like, well... So he... He doesn't think he's smart. He's not thinking anything. He's he's dead, and then it's and and I'm not being facetious here, but then it's and by old man Morgan and his faithful would be bloodhound, a cocker spaniel named Sp- Spooky. So now we've got three characters, one which we were introduced to and then immediately is dead. So it's kind of like we well, don't don't worry about him. He's not going anywhere. And then oh, we we've, we've introduced us to old man Morgan, and the, the, this name. So we've got three named characters. Old Man Morgan actually doesn't turn out to be, is neither the narrator nor even that important here. He's just the guy who finds the body because then it's like when we questioned him, he gave full credit to the dog and now we know, oh, so there's an So the actual character who's going to be leading us through this doesn't appear until the third paragraph and I just found, by the end of this, I kind of felt like I knew where I was but it was to go... Cara- named character who's dead Then named character and named dog Who find him And then oh by the way this is being told you By like an investigating officer or similar That confused me
1: But when it says when we questioned him I immediately thought Yes this is a policeman talking um, Or a police person that, That's not, not But what, what that made me think was Well why not start with the questioning Yeah Why not start with them standing in the field Next to Spooky, who's messing about and being a pain, and the old man going, "Yeah, I found him here," and them looking up at the body, and you get everything there very visually. Um, and old man Morgan, you can you can show him, and he can speak
0: and have a voice and an appearance. And maybe yeah, and and maybe like mention a couple of things, like like tell him uh, the his anecdote doesn't really stay on the body. Like sometimes he goes and talks something that tells us this instead of telling us. Uh, his mind, he wasn't exactly as mentally sharp as he used to be. Like you're saying, show don't tell. We can yeah. hear him not being as mentally sharp as he used he to be. Because he
1: sounds like he could be a great character.
0: Yeah, actually, he does. Just
1: to show, show him, <laughs> but it also it gets all the information across. You know, him saying, "Of course, he hasn't been here very long." Mm. Um, yeah, I hear he likes a drink. And you get all that information across without just kind of telling us in the first. One. So that's you've got a whole scene to open it, and that draws us in because we like reading about people doing stuff.
0: I think that's ri- that's a great example of how basically a first page might not be working but it's not a problem of the actual premise like this yeah. as an opening bid and as an opening like offer is really interesting it's just this idea of like how is it being pre- 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 uh, presented to us and I, I really agree that sounds like a cool and actually quite sort of upset and and it depends and then of course this uh investigator it depends we don't know they're a character in the scene are they feeling impatient as they wait for this kind of slightly sort of scatty old guy to show them are they horrified are they a member of the community and they have a personal stake have they been kind of bust in from out of town and they're like why why am I having to deal with this? I've been st- sent to this assignment on an island. We certainly, we potentially have a character who's an outsider looking in, and then a character who's like the local. There's, all of those things are really cool, and and there's just there's something more. And then we get and then we get to it, engage the five senses, which as you. Anyone who's listened to the show will know one of my favourite things, apart from engaging the five senses, crunchy specificity, you get to give us like something about that scene, the smell of the grass, you know, like the dog turning over the the body of like a a, a bird or something that it finds or digging up a like, we get to get some of that taste and touch and smell of what the place is like and then we feel like we're in it. Um, that's a really good point, I think. I've
1: been thinking about this a lot because I've just um, I've writ- written a murder mystery as well. Is, is this a r- Ragged Alice? Ragged Alice, yes. Yeah. So it came out end of last month. Um, and so I needed to start it in a very similar way with finding a body. Um, so it starts with a short prologue from the victim's point of view. Um, I think the first line is, Lucy managed to open her eyes three times before she died. And then I do the three times she opens her eyes and her impressions. Um, And then chapter one, bam, starts with police inspector getting out of the car and looking at the body and saying, what have we got here then? And then drawing conclusions. And so all the backstory about the the little community and, and everything all comes through that first scene of the inspector who's from sort of out of town talking to the local police. And it's all kind of woven in without any kind of telling on my part. So my voice isn't in there it's the voices of the characters telling each other the stuff.
0: I, I, yeah, I think I, um, so, and this person is a member of the, of the small island community. Actually, now I look at it because it's, it's, Henry was relatively new to our small island community, but you can tell, you can let people know that it's a small island community without actually saying the word small island community. Can't you? It's like, we just have to see this person and going, he hadn't been on the island long. Like, even when if, if the narrator calls it the island we know it's a it's a community right like we know it, if, if the person knows whether this person's been here or not they know everything that goes on, on the island it must be small that's a I. that's really really cool okay and um, the final any sort of last thoughts on this at all
1: no this is this is like a, an intriguing opening it sets us up we know it's a, a murder mystery um, and obviously you know it's a very short amount of words to, to judge on um, but yeah, I think if it had been dramatized instead of just told, it would have drawn us in even quicker.
0: Yeah, and and like in terms of like there being a short amount of words, although that is of course the amount of words you as a writer have got to hook your reader to Absolutely. make an agent go, okay, I'm going to keep reading, to make an editor go, wow, um, and it's in a first draft those first 200 words will not be the right ones i've well i've never done it yet if you get to do it you're a, a mutant and i hate you no i don't i'm <laughs> pleased for you but it's like you it it, it it takes a while to find the heart of the story and um but so we yeah we're saying like stylistically there's like a more interesting way to come at this in terms of concept yeah. really really interesting opening and cool um as any sorry go on
1: i was just gonna say um Often the first page is the last thing that gets written, certainly for me. um, Often when you get to the end of the story, it tells you how it should have started.
0: I, I think you're not really qualified to write the first page until you finish the book, which is maddening because, of course, you would love having a good first page gives you some confidence to keep going. But I think sometimes I have to sort of lie to myself, make a kind of fake exciting first page, and then i get to the end of the story and i go well that isn't the right first page at all yeah. but something that can conv- even if it's just a first line that convinces me that there's something there um, and then it inevitably gets cut because it's never very good because i always write like three prologues i in in the ice house my publishers quite rightly made me cut a 13,000 word prologue <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> they
0: were they were right like what well, that's that's I mean, I don't like to give sort of like when people say, how long should a chapter be? You know, I don't like to give things, but if, how long should a prologue be? Not, thir- not 13,000 words. Like, I feel like I, we can all agree that writing community can be healed and come together in agreeing that a prologue shouldn't be that long. That's, that's not a prologue. That's just a, a, a log. Um, <laughs> would anybody, um, any, anyone in the audience got anything to add? Any, any uh, feelings about that at all? Cool. Um, We'll move on to uh, the last of our three pieces. Um, This is uh, by Andy, and it's called The Leveling. Jellicoe plucked a fly from his beard. He liked travelling by cloud. He got to sit back, relax, and read a book. It was faster than a horse, and a cloud didn't get tired or spooked by a rustling branch but seemingly suicidal flies seemed determined to burrow at great speed into his beard, possibly because they thought there might be food in there. It's been so long since I bathed, he thought. Perhaps they're right. He licked his finger and turned to the next page of The Old Scientist. There was a frankly rabid piece on the new ironwood staves and some foolishness about utilising fish in summoning rituals. This, as far as Jellicoe was concerned, could only be addressed in one way. Guppy? Guppy? Yes, my lad? Take a letter! The smaller man squirmed all elbows as he tried to arrange an inkwell and some parchment on a level surface. Not an easy task when both you and your table are travelling on a tuft of vapour, skimming across the countryside at an altitude of precisely ten feet. Jellicoe cleared his throat and adopted a pose that, whilst still recumbent, signified great oratory was imminent. Dear sir, he began. Or madam? Don't be ridiculous! Guppy frowned. Tavern? I was disappointed and chagrined to read your article. What? There's the tavern on the crest. We're here, Malud Thoughts about this one?
1: Uh, yeah, I like it. It's um, and the thing that grabbed me first was the description of, of Guppy. <laughs> the fact he's called Guppy, and in just one sentence where they said the smaller man squirmed all elbows, I could picture him. Mm. just from that, that, that that's you know when, when you're describing a character just pick one little detail that speaks for the rest and the fact that he's squirming and he's all elbows and little I've got him immediately I know what he looks like so I really like that this, this felt very Terry Pratchett to me yeah it, yeah um but it was good I like the, the old scientist instead of the new scientist that made me hmm. laugh <laughs> oh <laughs> I just got that <laughs> oh <laughs> Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the way they talked, um, the way the characters talked, felt quite natural. And you know, I'm immediately drawn into who Jellicoe is. I can imagine him, sort of fat, pompous, you know. So I'm I'm immediately in there, and I want to know what he's doing. I mean, there was some, I I did some annoying scribbles on the first couple of uh, chapters because I felt they could be.
0: Can, can we jump? Can we jump into that? We are we, you are in a safe space for um, extreme grammar pedantry uh, here, here. So um,
1: it's not pedantry so much in that it, it needed to be chopped into, into more sentences uh, because the second sentence goes on quite long.
0: So the second sentence is: He likes travelling by cloud. Dash. You got to sit back, relax, and read a book. Semicolon. It was faster than a horse, comma, and a cloud didn't get tired, comma, or spooked by a rustling branch. That. Is, it does make me feel like I needed to sort of take a breath and go down and then come back up. It's like yeah. a diving bell of a sentence.
1: So Jellicoe plucked a fly from his beard.
0: Good opening sentence. And Jellicoe is like, Jell- I, do, I do agree with you, the names Jellicoe and Guppy do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of giving us a sense of who these characters are. They're quite Dickensian yeah. in their kind of like giving us a bit of nominative determinism. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, none of the words need to change, just the punctuation. So it could be Jellicoe plucked a fly from his beard. He liked travelling by cloud, full stop. Yeah. You got to sit back, relax and read a book, full stop. It was faster than a horse and a cloud didn't get tired or spooked by a rustling branch. It it just moves moves it along slightly faster than one long sentence. Although I will admit that that one long sentence seems to be the sort of sentence Jellicoe would write.
0: Yeah I, yeah, I agree with you 100%, but I think actually we can do that. Later on, like I feel like the sentence that gives us that sense without making me um, feel like um, my eyes are sort of like uh, starting to roll back in my head is Jellicoe cleared his throat and adopted a pose that, whilst still recumbent, signified great oratory was imminent. That is actually a reasonably short sentence, but because it's got that subordinate clause whilst still recumbent, <laughs> which is like it ju- also it's a lovely bit of mock. He, um, mock heroic thing because it basically means he's 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 like lounging right, but it, it it tries to kind of like give it this pomposity. I thought that worked. I thought with these longer ones at the beginning, they're sort of just going on and on without actually being complex. And I think shorter ones with more with more interesting relationships between the court clauses than and, 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 or semicolon, 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 gives that sense of uh, someone who considers themselves, uh, you know, quite a person of letters, um, who every utterance they have is of great import.
1: Also in that first paragraph, um, we we have the use of seemingly seemed, Possibly and perhaps, all within a couple of sentences. So probably lose the seemingly suicidal flies seemed determined. So just cross out seemingly and suicidal flies seemed determined to burrow his beard. And then possibly because they thought there might be food in there, it's fine. And then you've got to perhaps they're right. So maybe just kind of, that's a lot of non-committal language in a couple of sentences. It
0: is, yeah. I find that creeping into a lot of my, I have to go through my work for sort of, kind of, possibly maybe perhaps because a lot of that is about me being a bit nervous um rather I put put in a lot uh uh, because like yeah it it, I get it like when you're trying to go for a highfalutin pompous voice you imagine that what that person is going to do is use a lot of adverbs um which is true but uh it doesn't make doesn't make that inherently entertaining to read and all of those things are ways of it's so good to not water down sentences with these like hedging words, like possibly. You, you, I always think the world's going to end when I take them out. And then if you take this sentence and, and we take those out, even seemed, even, I would even take out seemed and just change that to were. Like no one's going to, no reader's going to step in and go, prove it! Like it, <laughs> it's like, because it, if we do all that, um, so I'll take it out and 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 and, and let's split this into two. Uh, as per, um, so it's like it was faster than a horse, and the cloud didn't get tired or spooked by a rustling branch. But suicidal flies were determined to burrow at speed into his beard. There might be food in there. It's been so long since I bathed. He thought, perhaps they're right. You know, or 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 there is. You know, like you immediately. That doesn't. I don't think it takes away from his from his sense of grandeur. In fact, having some short sentences in there, all the old epics are written in simple language. There's a kind of bold and boldness, and even a pomposity. To... I remember, okay, so I was at Hay-on-Wye and I saw somebody, the Archbishop Rowan Williams was there and someone went up to him and said excuse, it's such a good setup as well. They went, they tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and they went, excuse me, are you the Archbishop Rowan Williams? And he looked them up and down and said, I am. <laughs> and there's something just about the simpleness of like, uh, like, cause I'd, if someone, I mean, I wouldn't say yes to, are you the Archbishop Rowan Williams? <laughs> I, I wouldn't make that claim. I mean, maybe if I found myself having been mistaken, and then I felt like I was going to let people down by not being the Archbishop Rowan Williams, I would continue the farce uh, <laughs> for a while. But, you know, I, if someone said, are you Tim Clare? I'd say, oh, yes, he- hello. Um, uh, nice to see you. But there's something about just going, I am. <laughs> that had all that sense of kind of oratory and not pompousness but just self-possession, and I feel like Jellicoe could have some moments of being like uh, of being like a, 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 a he was was he ready to write he was that would feel it would give that sense of so i think i think um the author could and it gives you the excuse to vary the sentence language, which is always a relief for the reader.
1: I, I would just say that um, I don't think Jellicoe would have food in his beard.
0: He strikes, it was an odd, yeah. He
1: strikes me as somebody who would comb his beard a lot. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: um, maybe say so that he might have missed a piece of food.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe, hi, in his head, he's got an excuse for why.
1: Yeah, but but because um, it made me think he was dirty from the, the journey, and then he came across as not dirty in the next couple of sentences. If you see what I mean, much more of a gentleman than would allow you know would not comb his beard because a gentleman's beard is his castle.
0: I think, like, that yeah, moment yes. of it, like, like he, yeah. it, that, the idea that he thinks it's sort of like, maybe, maybe he almost sees the flies as it being slightly slanderous that they would be looking in his beard. But, but his beard is so luxuriant. It Yeah, I like that idea that he's going... It was possible that while perusing, um, you know, some great tome, uh, you know, a few, a crumb may have uh, may have slipped his mind. Such was the, you know, such as the lofty, lofty mind of the scholar cannot always attend to every crumb.
1: Perhaps Guppy had not combed his beard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's um yeah, exactly, and actually, that immediately becomes. Even something as simple as whether he's got food in his beard becomes a great opportunity for su- suggesting characterization. And um, I'm also, I have to say, I'm excited to see what happens when this character with a very high opinion of himself, who is surrounded by someone who is not... who doesn't pop that bubble, who seems possibly a little, ske- uh, a little sceptical of it, but doesn't actively pop his bubble of pomposity. What happens when... This person then meets other people, and how he maintains in that. a tavern. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. It seems like it seems like somewhere that would be he would consider perhaps a little lower than his status would normally have, and whether the tavern is full of people who genuinely think here comes a great scholar, here comes a great wizard on a cloud. Yeah, yeah, he's on a cl- right. That's him, or whether they think. I'm quite interested how they're going to park it. <laughs> cool um th- yeah oh thanks so that's that's awesome has anybody else got any thoughts on this piece yeah of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i actually on,
2: on the thing about the i rather felt the thing about the beard was that he he's he has really high opinion of himself but he's really down on his luck and that's why, like, he hasn't bathed for a long time because he actually can't, and that's why he's ending up at the tavern. So that was kind of the sense I got of it. Like, He thinks he's amazing. No one else does. And um, I also, I just really loved, like, the whole, th- I wanted to read on uh, because the way that the language was used, the words, like, recumbent, and, and there was the sentence where it describes trying to set up the table on a... Piece of water vapor? Yeah, exactly. Ten, precisely. I think was the adverb.
0: Yeah, but, uh, uh, skimming across the countryside at an altitude of precisely ten feet.
2: I thought was, I really, really liked that. Um, so, and it, it really drew me into. What's exactly the what same? I really liked that. And um, so other thing, um, a story about. Wandering around, how am I being mistaken for the Archbishop of Canterbury and having to go along with it does sound as the like great premise
0: for a novel. <laughs> <laughs> you can have it, but if you don't, I'm taking it. Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, I really like that thing you're saying about maybe that this is someone who is, you know, a little bit like a kind of like aging colonel in some kind of like colonial possession bar, like expat yeah. bar, like who has seen better days. I do like that, but I still agree with Gareth that, like, we can have that sense of these guys like need a break. Um, but this person also wanting to sort of rise above it or, you know, the, 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 there, there, there being a sense of, I, you know, I remember sort of read, in fact, talking about like old kernels and stuff. I remember reading about, uh, uh, you know, an old colonel an old folks home who like till the day he died would like get up every morning and, you know, like, properly, like, shave with a cutthroat razor. And I like the idea that even if, you know, even if the comb that he puts through, then the couple of the teeth are break or they're broken or, like, they're not really making great headway or he says, where's my beard oil? And it's like, you know, we run out, sir. Well, can we use some of the kind of, like, cooking oil? Well, you know, that that will do. <laughs> the feeling like they're trying to... Keep Make them, yeah. Keep up appearances. I think could be really good. So your point, I really take your point that this can be. It could, this could be doing a better job of setting up the sense that whatever maybe they've come to the town for a job, for a quest. Um, they need the money. <laughs> like they, they, it's it, you can't afford to turn this down. But I, I would like him to be not. Uh, he just kind of like there's a kind of like languor to it, like he's like 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 he's like I uh, I'm covered in crumbs, I can't face it, and I'd like it to be a bit more like Gareth said that he is um, sort of gainfully trying to power through, even though it's it's not going great. Um, before we sort of um finish, I just wondered if uh, I, I know sort of Q and As sometimes. Uh, cause the audience to lose the will to live, um, but just if anyone had any questions at all about writing, about our books,
2: about anything like that. I have yes. About writing in general. Oh, of course. Um, how? I mean, obviously, you say you do it as a living, really. So you kind of I presume you sit down at nine o'clock in the morning, work till five. I'm assuming. Um, I won't contradict. that <laughs> I struggle to find time to write, and in fact, I very rarely write at all, even though I have non-stop ideas and they never go anywhere because I haven't got time. How do? Is it in your book? Will it, it tell me how to find the time amongst working households, children, and all the other crap I have to deal with?
1: Yes, there's two chapters. Buy your book. In a minute. <laughs> <laughs> there's two chapters. One is entitled "Finding More Time to Write," and the other. Well, time to read. And the other one is called um, "Juggling Writing with Your Day Job." So but, because yeah. at
2: the moment, if I have time to read, that's great. But if
1: I read, I haven't got time to write. It's an eternal dilemma because if you haven't got time to read, it's, your writing is not going to be as good as it could okay. be. So and I do like to read. yes.
0: So I, I like. I feel like I have recently become mildly sort qualified to answer this because I'm now a, a dad of a of a two and a half year old, and um, like I'm often the time that I'm not like looking after her or doing admin, I'm falling asleep at the desk. So I I do think like what Gareth said about that hundred words a day thing is starting... Like, It's so important, I think, as a writer to, to make the standards that you set for yourself ones that are serving you. Your writing should be your employee, not your boss. And it's important that you're not giving... And I'm not saying you are personally, I mean you as in one, that, that you don't give away your sort of uh, creative and emotional sovereignty to this idea of what a writer is. Because it's very easy to start sitting down and, and then write a sentence that's just like, John went through the blue, nice, great door.
2: And then, and then
0: you look at it, and you go, "Ah, oh, you go." I bet Neil Gaiman doesn't do this. I bet I bet John's trip through that door would have been um, magical and amazing. And so you can start just imagining that there's a kind of ideal writer that's out there who is working from nine to five, who's doing all these different things and um, doing them well and better than you, and then you feel guilty and all sorts of things. And I think. You, I think an important thing to ask yourself is what do I want from writing? Uh, because, you know, writing just a, a just 50 words, just a hundred words a day, doing just 10 minutes a day is, you know, the, the course that I wrote for the podcast, the couch to 80k writing bootcamp is 10 minutes a day, six days a week. And that was important for me because I wanted it to be fittable in around other stuff, which, you know, as a dad, like it, I just, you know, it, just bedlam a lot of the time uh and also because i have oh i could get to i'm just looking in the sky has the um has the neuroscience beacon been lit i see it on the hill but burning on the mountains yes i can talk about neuroscience in writing um i'm been speaking to a lot of brain scientists who've been like looking at authors under with fMRI scans and stuff like that and seeing what happens to the brain when you write a lot. In 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 fact doing scans of writers' brains as they are writing. And if you train the brain over time, and to train the brain, you only need 10 minutes a day. It's little and often rather than big binge sessions. The r- people who write frequently, their brains start to change. And the parts of the brains that are used when they write start to change. To the extent that I spoke to this guy, Martin Lotzer in Germany. And he has studied, uh, he got some writers underneath the um fMRI scan machine. And they had to write in pencil because it's a... Uh, A giant magnet, right? So if you try and use a laptop, it gets sucked up into the machine. So they're right. And then he just got some people, not literally off the street, but people who don't write at all, to write some scenes as well. And he found that writers who write regularly use a completely different hemisphere of the brain when they're writing. So it's not even just more bits light up. It's the it's that a different part of the brain lights up completely. And there's also this thing called the basal ganglia, which is about... To do with kind of like automization and downstreaming. And when you write regularly, and it's not about the length of time you spend writing, it's about doing doing it's about the frequency and then the sleeps in between where that habit gets ingrained, um, then a lot of what your brain starts to do is downstreaming with the basal ganglia and helping you basically automize it. In fact, like the the dirty secret of a lot of writing is that like it actually looks a lot less like creativity and a lot more like kind of like robot, Boticite, like a lot of the bits of it are automated and are not very and I and I also think by the way that robots will become much more creative than us I've made some like Twitter bots and they're much better at coming up with ideas than me because they're not afraid of looking like idiots so they come up with stupid stuff and then occasionally they'll put things together that I would never have considered because I didn't want to look like an idiot so my sort of thing to you is like listen to what Gareth is saying about like that little breaking uh, cri- or creative writing block do a 100 words, find the like tiny little cracks, but at the same time, don't feel like I have to be writing while I'm on the loo, I should be writing. Because people will say, oh, anyone can find time to write. I write when I'm on the bus. I write before I go to bed. I write when I'm watching TV. And it's like, and it just sets this impossible standard of are you alive Are you writing? Why not? And it's like, well, because I'm a human being who has like a right to exist in the world and breathe. And like you are, and I know you know this already, but I'm saying this to everyone. You're like a valuable person who is contributing to the world just by being alive. And that kind of feeling of like, oh, find some time for yourself as a writer is is a glass key that must be turned very gently if it's going to unlock the box. You won't. Otherwise, you, it just becomes a rod for your own back, and it's there's, and that's why again you come back to this thing of like, why do I, what do I want my writing to do for me? And you make a, you make, you work out for yourself what do I want this stuff to do? Because it's your employee, and if it's not going to make you feel better, if it's not going to give you some satisfaction, if it's not going to enhance the rest of your life, then you need to <laughs> tell it you. Then you either need to change what the how you write or you just tell it to f off because like it's it's yours and it doesn't have to fit the model of what anyone else does and um and also just to not underplay this thing of not having very much time you know one of the reasons we have like a largely male white upper middle class canon is because they were the people who had uh women and working class people and 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 frankly like Black people um and, uh, like, servants doing all their work for them so they could just swan around the house all day. And it's something I feel – don't erase that from your own story of what you're doing because you're having to overcome – anyone who's busy, anyone who has any responsibility aside from writing – um Anyone who ha- has you know men- mental health issues that make it anxiety issues that make it hard to write. I'm just including myself here in this kind of self valorization by going. I mean, they're the real heroes, of course. And like, hey, you have anxiety issue. I mean, they're clearly the people who have it the worst, and so anything they do is better than. That. But all of those things are. I don't want to by saying you can do it. I don't ever want to sound like I'm saying, and the challenges you face aren't real. They are, Um, but. That's exactly why we need people who are busy. We need people who are... They're often the people who've got the most interesting stories to tell. You know, I'm, I'm looking back here, at like I saw Holly McNish's book on here, Nobody Told Me, where she... You know, I've known Holly for about 10 years now, but she writes about being a mum. And the number of people who just like engage with her poetry and her writing, which she's done like at two in the morning, <laughs> knackered, where like having j ju- like with her daughter on her arm at times, she's written them. And I'm not saying it's been hard, but it's meant that she's been able to talk to people who don't feel represented and just going, I'm a mum, I'm really tired, I'm not really enjoying it at the moment. I feel like I might be quite crap at it. I don't feel like a writer either. Help. <laughs> it's really good. You know, like my, my friend Mark, who, um, did poetry and came out of it from being a teacher and then went into battle rap and then started it. Di- like he does a lot of his sets are about being a teacher. And that was the bit that was, that's the bit that people connect with. They're like, Oh, this is what it's like to teach some kids and then go home and be knackered. So sorry. I'm kind of ranting, but like I, I feel very passionately about it that be kind to yourself um i think like gareth knows what he's talking about when he says about like finding ways into these and i know you know you as well gareth have gone through periods of like going how am i going to make this book work or am i going to sell another book do i have any idea how am i going to fit cuz real life happens to you right when you're writing a book it's long enough that to...
1: yeah i i do write surrounded by piles of laundry yeah
0: um
1: and and it's a constant battle between housework and writing and um, to be honest housework loses um, <laughs> I don't I don't watch broadcast TV anymore um I only watch things on demand because I don't want to be tired you know I'll do it when I want to do it and um, the house is filthy but then you know I read the autobiography of JG Ballard and he said the same thing whenever people would come to interview him they'd go bloody hell your house is dusty and he would go yeah well Look at all these novels. So it's you know my, my lawn is as long as I keep it lower than the fence, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> the cats come in looking like Vietnam veterans, um, and it's you know you have to let things slide and you have to pick your battles. So you know I'm not sitting there you know in a smoking jacket with a glass of absinthe going. Uh, so no no no. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sitting there surrounded by laundry and uh, I've got two kids as well and they're coming. Dad, can you give me a lift to school? Dad, where's my E kit dad why aren't there any clean shirts Um, (laughs) you know and it's um, you know real life happens as as you say and you have to kind of pick and fight your way through it and and kind of choose which bits that you're you know which bits you're going to uh, whether it's more important that my mother comes in and goes Jesus Christ or whether she (laughs) you know or whether I've I've written a book and I don't care that she she thinks I live in a pigsty so it's you know it's it's uh Six of one, half a dozen of the other, really.
0: Does that sort of answer your question? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. Sorry.
1: At great length.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, right or clean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Has anyone else got any other questions before we uh, finish up? Oh, hello. Hi. Uh, could,
2: don't, why don't you take the opportunity to give us a plug on your latest books?
0: Thank you. That is. Uh, can, shall, can we can, That feels like a, a an obvious plant, but yeah, thank you, or, or or just someone who knows how to do our jobs better than us. Our, our, I'm sorry for um. So um, Gareth, would you like to? Could you talk? Your I'm pointing as if that will work in audio, but like um, I'll just say over. There's a shelf over there with Gareth's uh, books on. Could you could you give people a little pricey about um, uh, uh, the Embers of War series because it's like a, I really like talking about it with people because I just start explaining the premise and I can see their faces like light, light up and I'm like sometimes when I try to explain my own books I see people like nodding politely as their face like this rictus grin appears and I feel like I'm explaining my like a PhD that nobody else could ever understand whereas when I talk about your books people are just like oh cool
1: <laughs> I hate doing this because Sorry <laughs> you know, it, it, it took me 200,000 words to, to say And now I've got to try and get that down to about 50 But it's um, It's it's basically A space opera But it's more a literary space opera It's more psychological It's every kind of science fiction Series I've read is building up To a great war um, Sort of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings everything's building up to a great war in the final book this story takes place three years after that war um, and it's to do with what happens to the characters who fought um, the things they did the people they were what they had to do and how they lived with that afterwards and one of the characters is a warship who is sentient called the trouble dog and she took part in a bombing uh, which happens in the prologue which is basically a, a horrendous war crime um but at the time she was following her programming in her direction but since then she's accidentally grown a conscience and so she's resigned her commission and gone to work for an organi- a humanitarian organization and she has a captain who's also deeply flawed by her experiences in the war who fought on the opposite side and together they are sort of coming together and trying to do good in the world um but against the background of this, this deeply shell shocked kind of political landscape. I think that sums it up in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um and um my books that I've got here are The Honours and the Ice House. The Honours has the it's like a it's supposed to be like a, I wrote it as a kind of like ripping yarn. There's like secret tunnels, there's like a 13-year-old girl who's obsessed with like shotguns and thinks the Bolsheviks are gonna take over at any moment. There's like secret society, a country house. Uh and um my publishers Cadengate, bless them, uh, opened the blurb on the back with 1935. Norfolk.
2: <laughs> which, which, which like I
0: live in Norfolk, I love it, but that doesn't scream adventure to me. Um uh, but but and it is indeed set in 1935 in 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 Norfolk, but um there's more going on. Um and uh, uh and and then um The Ice House is the sequel and it's set 70 years like la- i got to check what 73 years later 73 years later and um, it's um the same character delphine but she's an old uh what, she's in her 80s now and she still is thinking about what went on and it is about i would sort of describe it as being like the story is being about an old lady is pulled out of retirement for one last job. Uh, And uh, it's kind of about, well, I'll maybe to finish, if you will indulge me, well, even if you won't indulge me and you all file out angrily, (laughs) I'm just going to read a tiny bit of like my first page. um, And then uh, I'll just say, thank you very much for coming. And then afterwards, Perhaps if anyone would like to uh, buy mine or Gareth's books, we would be delighted, almost pathetically grateful on my part, (laughs) to sign them and to say hello to you and thank you for coming. I I will just vouch for Gareth's books as well. I don't have to because they've been, you know, they've been flying off the shelves. People love them. You can go online and see amazing reviews of them, but I love them and they're really exciting and fun, but also with like emotional. Depth that you would not normally attribute to a spaceship. Um, but they deal with like some really surprisingly poignant issues about like, like, or kind of like PTSD and what happens after the kind of glorious finale. So I I really recommend them. If you think you kind of know what science fiction and space opera is all about, I think this will kind of like take Your perceptions and preconceptions, and just like rotate them through 90 degrees in a kind of deliciously disorienting way. Um, So, I'm going to just read the beginning of um, The Ice House. And it, I mean, like, I have to say the covers of these two books do look really gorgeous. Um, I'm really, really happy with them. Um, And this is just from the beginning of the book. And um, it goes like this A man burns. He stands at the foot of a mountain. Ropes of flame lap up his naked body. Fat drips and smokes. As he burns, he heals. Hagar watches from the shadow of the church. She registers his torment with the slight tightening of the jaw. Her three centuries have not numbed her to suffering, but it is a familiar pain, a punch working the same bruise. Still, she has never seen a peer with gifts quite like his. Who is she? she says the angel stands beside her his slender body wreathed in vapor he smiles winsomely my dearest friend his name is gideon the angel's calmness makes her belly clench there are bodies in the river blood gluts the shallows how can he be so serene and sarai gone says the angel what how her kidnapper fled with her into the jungle He managed to evade all our troops. He's very ingenious. Then it's over. The angel chuckles softly. How quickly your faith evaporates. But everything rests on her. Arthur, we need her. The angel lowers his gaze. The mud around his bare feet stiffens, glistering with frost. It's not yet the time. The angel seems irritated, almost petulant. You of all people ought to understand the value of patience. His expression resets, his composure returning. Don't worry. He loves the child. You'll track her down within the decade. How? I don't know exactly. Oh, don't look at me like that. I don't mean to be cryptic. My god dreams out of time. I see fragments, possibilities, but I know we can win. Hagar tongues the hole in her gum left by her missing eye tooth. Her scroon, Raum is tethered to an olive tree, his canoe-shaped beak clop-clopping as he feeds on the corpse of a soldier. His feathers are dulled with road dust, but the wet wet ridges of his long, straight bill shine like the pearlescent ribs of a seashell. Grey skin bags bags around his double-jointed knees. His legs are muscular, the middle toe of either foot extending in a wicked, blade-like talon. He glances up, fixing her with his big, hazel eyes. His lashes tremble with droplets of coagulating blood. She turns to the angel. Tell me what happens. But you already know. Tell me again. Thank you everyone for coming.